welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. What do you want is a question asked a lot this time of year. Sometimes we go big with the answer, or at least we think we go big. Possessions, power, pleasure. When we have them, it's never enough. Perhaps that's because they're not what we really want. The message longing for Christmas, longing for what, comes from teaching team member Bob Cargo and covers Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 4, 7, 8, 10, and 11. Thank you for joining us today. Let me just mention that we have the privilege today to have our own teaching team member, Bob Cargo, been here for decades and decades and decades. I don't remember when the last time he wasn't on our staff. It seems forever and ever. Grateful to have Bob. Bob and I grew up together and have been dear friends and love co-laboring together. He always brings a solid teaching of God's word. So Bob, you come and I'm going to pray as you're coming. Okay. Father, I'm going to ask you now that you would bless Bob as he teaches us. Thank you for the gifts you've given to him and for the depth of understanding and truth. We pray that you would uh, bless us today as a congregation, as he teaches us and prepares us in our hearts uh, to be your ambassadors and your servants and your friends in a better way. So we thank you. We love you. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you, Randy, for those kind words. Uh, it's always, uh, always great to be here uh, bringing God's word to you. Great to be part of the perimeter team. Well, only four days till Christmas, right? Only four days. So are you excited about it? Uh, are you dreading it? Uh, or are you sort of oblivious to it? Uh, I don't know if you can relate to this. Maybe some other uh, husbands can. But I hate it when someone says, well, Bob, are you ready for Christmas? And I always feel like saying, you'll have to ask my wife, honey, are we ready for Christmas? You know? Uh, I, I'm, I'm oblivious. Uh, she's a little stressed, but she always does a great job getting us ready for Christmas. And I'm very, very thankful for that. You know, there may be different phases people go through about their attitude about anticipating Christmas, right? The other night at our uh, church officer Christmas bar party, Bob Carter, one of our other pastors, said that there are four phases that people go through about Santa Claus. You believe in Santa Claus. You don't believe in Santa Claus. You are Santa Claus, and you look like Santa Claus. I don't know, you know, what, what phases people go through. Maybe there's phases we go through just about our attitude about Christmas itself. We're excited about Christmas. We're so-so about Christmas. We dread Christmas. And then we're, maybe we become nostalgic and wistful about Christmas. I, I don't know. But I do know this, or at least it's my opinion. In the American culture, the Christmas season arouses some faint memories of anticipation, excitement, and hope, some faint yearnings and expectations and desires that are fulfilled a little bit, but largely not fulfilled. Isn't that true? I think that the Christmas season reawakens for us a slight warm memory mingled together with a gnawing emptiness, mingled together with a hollowness in our hearts, a faint, warm memory mingled together with a desire for, well, we're not sure just what. You know, that, that idea of a deep longing for something that we can't quite put our finger on. Uh, that makes me think about two observations from that great British scholar, C.S. Lewis. He said this in his address called The Weight of Glory. You'll see it on the screen. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered, it's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Also makes me think of the words of C.S. Lewis from the book Mere Christianity. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Or I might put it this way, we were made for this world with everything made right like it should be. Everything made appropriate as it ought to be. The title of today's message is this, Longing for Christmas, Longing for what? Longing for what? What is that gnawing emptiness that we feel at this time of the year? I would suggest to you that we are made for a gift that you can't put in a cardboard box and put it under a tree. We're made for a love that no family member can give to us. We're made for a life to be built in such a way that we can never build it ourselves. And in fact, we are made for an acceptance Someone to know us thoroughly and accept us and affirm us completely. We don't find that from any human source, not here on earth. Isn't it true, my friends, that we all seek to satisfy the deepest longing of our hearts with things that don't satisfy? You do, I do, we all do. But the big idea of today's message is this, that the gospel, that is the life, death, resurrection, reign and return of Jesus, that's what the gospel is, the life, death, resurrection, reign, and return of Jesus, the gospel brings us three things that satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Let me remind you, the gospel is for believers and unbelievers both. It's for all of us. What are these three things? To examine these three things that God gives to us, this Christmas message, we want to look at one of the most wonderful, powerful passages of the Old Testament. One of the most beautiful descriptions of who Jesus would be and what he would do for us is found in Isaiah 61. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to turn to Isaiah 61. It's one of the biggest books of the Old Testament, somewhere in the middle. Go to Psalms and turn right. You'll find an insert in your bulletin that will give you an outline of today's message. And on the back side of that outline is the passage we'll look at today. If you don't have either one of those, don't worry. You'll see everything you need on the screen, okay? The context of this passage, let me tell you what's going on here. In the backdrop of Isaiah 61 is that, that Israel has been taken away into captivity in Babylon. They were there for over 50 years from 597 B.C. to 539 B.C., they were captives in Babylon. And in 539, the Persians came and conquered Babylon, and they let the Israelites go back. This passage we're going to read today, we're going to study and talk about. It was fulfilled partly when Israel returned to Jerusalem. It's fulfilled in a greater way when Jesus came the first time and in what he does in our lives today and it will be ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes back again and he makes everything right. So the question is, if that's the big picture of how this thing's going to come true, why do you and I need to listen to this today? And here's the reason. This passage relates to our desire to be deeply, deeply, and perfectly loved. This passage relates to our desire to have someone who is powerful, gently remolding, renewing, in rebuilding our lives. This passage relates to our desire to have someone who will totally, thoroughly know us, 
and yet completely accept us and affirm us. What are these three gifts that's brought to us by King Jesus, by the coming of Jesus? Well, let's look at what it says. Start with him by looking at verses 1 through 3 of Isaiah 61. Here's what it says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim captive, freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for all those who grieve in Zion. Now, like I said, those were first the words of comfort from Isaiah to the people who were there imprisoned, so to speak, or held captive away in exile in Babylon. What had happened was between 597 B.C. and 582 B.C., in three different groups of deportation, all the people of Israel and all the people of Jerusalem were taken away to Babylon. And they were dragged away and brutally held there for over 50 years. So these people were in poverty. They were brokenhearted. They were mourning. They were prisoners. And so God sends Isaiah to them to proclaim to them the good news of freedom. They're going to be released and go back to the promised land and rebuild once again. But these prophetic words also point ahead to Jesus. Now, how do we know that Jesus fulfilled this passage? Well, he said so himself. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, goes to Nazareth where he grew up. And he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and it was the habit of just to give, choose one of the men at the synagogue to come forward and read from the scriptures. And so on that particular day, the rabbi asked Jesus to come forward and read the scriptures. And this is what we see in Luke 14. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus said, this passage is about me. <laughs> this passage is pointing to me. Now, here is the first of the three gifts that we're going to look at today that answer the deepest longing of our hearts. The first gospel gift that we long for is to have a compassionate king and prophet. To have a compassionate king and prophet. Now, as a 21st century American, you may think to yourself, that's not at all what I want. <laughs> I'm not looking for a king or a prophet. And the reason for that is simply this. Our experiences are with flawed and sinful and fallen kings and prophets. And so the idea of having a king and a prophet in our life is the last thing we want. Stop and think about it one at a time. Think about the idea of a prophet. What do you think of when you think of the word prophet? Don't you think of some religious zealot who is all about his religious truth, but doesn't at all care for and love people, especially flawed people like you and me, right? But on the other hand, isn't it true that we all want someone who will lovingly and gently tell us what is true? Someone who will love us as much as they love the truth. We do want a compassionate prophet, a truth teller who loves us 
What about this desire for a compassionate king? Boy, the, the story of humanity is the story of wicked and flawed and evil kings, right? But stop and think about all the stories that we're drawn to of a good, kind, compassionate, powerful king. Right now out in the theaters is, is a follow-up of the Lord of the Rings. It makes us think back to the Return of the King movie. We could talk about Camelot. We could talk about the Lion King. We could talk about Aslan and the Lion, the Witch, and the Warbrobe. The stories from literature go on and on and on. That in the depths of our hearts, there is this desire for a king who is not only powerful, but he's good, and he's kind, and he loves us, and he cares for us. Deep down inside, that's what we want. It really is. Now, how does this passage really point to Christ as our prophet and as our king? As we've already said here, Isaiah was the first prophet that preached this. He preached to those who were away as prisoners in Babylon and preached deliverance, restoration, recovery. Jesus comes on the scene in Luke 4 and he says, this is my message for you. What Isaiah preached to Jerusalem or to the Israelites is what I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching good news, gospel to the poor, that is those who are poor in spirit. I'm coming to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the, the, those with broken hearts. I'm coming to comfort those who mourn. I'm coming to restore broken lives. I'm coming because I'm that kind of compassionate, loving prophet. I'm declaring to you the deliverance that your soul really wants. Now, that's the way Jesus is this prophet. Now, how does this point to Jesus as king? Before we go on to king, one other thing. It says in this passage that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, he's referring there to the year of Jubilee. In the Old Testament history, what was supposed to happen was every 49th year, all indentured servants would be set free, all debts would be canceled, all property would revert back to the tribe that had that property when Israel first came to the promised land. And Jesus is saying here, I'm declaring to you the jubilee of all jubilees, that one day I will make everything right. The jubilee of all jubilees has come now that I'm here. The passage also says that he's come to declare the day of God's vengeance. What kind of vengeance? Vengeance against the enemies of our soul. Vengeance against hell and death and darkness and injustice and oppression. And so Jesus comes as the prophet to say all these things that are enemies of your soul, God's going to take care of those enemies. And all these good things you yearn for, in the depths of your soul, I'm declaring to you that's what God is doing. So he is the prophet to give us the good news. Now, how does this passage point to Jesus as king? Well, in verse 1 of this chapter, it says, the Lord has anointed me. Did you know that the word Messiah literally means anointed one, and the word Messiah also means king? So Messiah equals anointed one equals king. And so in this passage, Jesus says, not only am I the great prophet, I'm the great king. And it's sort of this logic. As the great prophet, he tells us the good news of what God will do for us, and as the king, he fulfills the promise. He makes good on the promise. Now, let me ask you, isn't that what you're looking for? What I want to point out here is Jesus is not like the evil kings that we've known through history. He is a king of compassion. He delivers those who are captives and prisoners. 
He comforts those who mourns. He cares for those who are brokenhearted. Now, let's admit this. Don't we all want someone who is very powerful, who will care for us and love us deeply? And that's someone we yearn for, my friends. That's King Jesus. Let me ask you this. Why is Christmas so often so disappointing? Let me tell you why. One of the reasons is this. We expect the love of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters to satisfy us in the depths of our soul, and that can never happen. Why is it the love, that the love of no husband or wife, the love of no girlfriend or boyfriend, the love of no family member, the love of no work associate, the, no, the love of no fantasy lover can ever satisfy our hearts? I'll tell you why. We were made for the love, the strong and powerful love of King Jesus. And only his love is going to satisfy the depths of our hearts. And my friends, that's what the Christmas story is. When Jesus was born for us, when he lived a perfect life, when he served and taught and preached and healed, when he died on the cross, when he was raised from the dead, he did all of that. Why? So he could become the prophet and king that we need. The prophet and king we long for in the depths of our souls. The first Christmas gift that Isaiah 61 tells us about is the gift of Jesus himself, a compassionate king and prophet. The second gift we hear or that we see here in this passage is the world put to rights with redemption and rejoicing. The world put to rights with redemption and rejoicing. I don't know what you think about it, but here's what I think about it. To watch the news is more depressing now than I can ever remember it being. Whether you're looking at the news of the world or the news about our nation or the news about our city, doesn't it make you yearn for a world where wrongs are made right, where evil is stopped and horrible things don't happen to people made in God's image? That's what we yearn for. We want a world where things are made right. And if that's too grandiose or abstract for you, then don't you have to admit that you want your life to be put to rights? You want your heart to experience peace and joy? You want your life to be what you want it to be in terms of rightness and goodness that you yearn for, but you can never can get there. You don't live up to your own ideals, do you? I don't either. We want our hearts to be put to rights. And that's what this chapter is about as well. Beginning really at the end of verse 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, that's what he talks about. Well, we'll just look at some selected verses. Look first of all at verses 3 and 7. It says, and he will provide for those who grieve in Zion. And this defines it. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. For the display of his splendor. It's all about his glory. Verse 7. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. Now, do you notice here the contrast? It's a contrast we can put up on the chart, uh, this chart right here. And it says, for those who are followers of Jesus, this is what God promises to give us. He'll give us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And those ashes represent the destruction of our lives. It represents mourning and despair and sadness. 
He'll give us gladness instead of mourning. He'll give us a spirit of praise instead of despair. He'll give us a double portion to celebrate instead of shame. He'll give us an inheritance we can rejoice in instead of disgrace. And he'll give us everlasting joy. Now let me ask you, is your life right now characterized by the things that are on the right? Is your life characterized by disgrace and shame and despair and mourning and ashes? I've heard someone say that all of us in our lives are in one of three places. Either we're in a place where our life is in shambles, either through our own actions or through what other people have done to us. Our life is in shambles, or we're afraid our life is about to enter that chapter of being in shambles. If we're discovered, if we're found out, if a few things don't go exactly right, everything will fall apart, or we're wildly successful and terrifically empty. And I don't know which one of those three would describe your life, but I do know this. Jesus can come and rebuild your life. The gospel is the promise of God for a process where he will remold us and renew us, and he will take away the disgrace and the, the shame and the mourning and the despair, and he will replace it with gladness and joy and celebration and beauty. That's the kind of thing he does. We see this also in verses 3 and 4 and 11. Look at these verses. First of all, verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You see, Israel had become like a withered stump in Babylon. And God says, you're not going to be a withered stump any longer. I'm going to bring you back and turn you into an oak of righteousness. Verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Now I want you to notice three key words, rebuild, restore, renew. Rebuild, restore, renew. Then verse 11, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. All the world will see it. Now, how will these terrific verses be fulfilled? Well, there are three fulfillments of this passage. It's like a bud that becomes a flower that becomes a fruit. There's first of all, as you see here, The first fulfillment of this passage came when Israel returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And what did God do for Israel at that time? He rebuilt them, he restored them, he renewed them, he redeemed them. That's the first fulfillment of this this passage. The second fulfillment of the passage comes when Jesus returned, when Jesus came the first time. At the first coming of Jesus, it's like the flowering fulfillment He comes to us and he spiritually restores and rebuilds and renews and redeems our lives. That's part of the second fulfillment. And the third fulfillment is like the fruit that comes from the flower. The fruit then is the second coming of Jesus. And it's the second coming of Jesus. Everything perfectly in this earth will be renewed and rebuilt and restored and made right. In that world that we wish existed will come back again. There's the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah 61. Now, given that we are self-centered, individualistic, 21st century Americans, okay, we want to know where do I fit in the picture? Where do I fit in? And here's where we fit in. It's in part two. Part two, you see the flower, you see the coming of the first advent of Jesus. And what happens at that point is that Jesus starts rebuilding our lives. 
Let me give you two quick stories to illustrate this. And I hope that you'll be able to identify with one or both of these stories. They're both a little bit old, but they're both powerful and wonderful. First is the story of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a former Marine, a graduate of Wash U's Law School, and from 1969 to 1973, special counsel to the President of the United States. Talk about power, talk about influence, talk about a life that would seem to be all together, but spiritually empty. In 1973, Chuck Colson was arrested for and convicted of his role in Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal. He was sent to prison in 1974. Talk about a life in shambles. Talk about a life that has been ruined. Never to practice law, never to reenter politics. Talk about a man whose sins caught up with him and the negative results of his sins. Well, in 1973, Colson was also converted to Christ between the Watergate event and his imprisonment. And when he came out of prison, he founded what is called Prison Fellowship. It became the largest outreach to prisoners and ex-prisoners and their families. Here's what I'm trying to say. Chuck Colson's life was in shambles. But God rebuilt his life, renewed his life, restored his life, redeemed his life. And then God gave him a ministry of restoring and redeeming and renewing the lives of prisoners and their families. Chuck Colson began to be a person who promoted prisoner rehabilitation. He began to promote the reform of the U.S. prison system, a system that he disdained for what he called lock them up and leave them warehouse approach to criminal justice. He pushed for bipartisan legislation for the reform of the criminal justice system in our country. And Chuck Colson's life not only was a life in which his life was rebuilt, but he was used to rebuild the lives of other people. A worse story can hardly be imagined, a more horrible story. But God rebuilt the life of Chuck Colson. He took Colson's life from disgrace and shame and mourning and despair, and he turned it into a life of celebration and joy and excitement and usefulness. It says in this passage in Isaiah 61 that God loves justice. And Colson's life illustrates that when we follow the Lord, we love and promote justice and mercy as well. Let me ask you today, are you here today, and maybe you haven't been sentenced to prison, but you have ruined your own life. Your decisions, your sins, your actions that have been wrong have brought your life into ashes, and you know it. And you may be wondering, can my life ever be rebuilt? Chuck Colson's story illustrates, I don't care what you've done to ruin your life. I don't care what horrible decisions you've made. God can renew you. He can restore you. He can redeem you. And he can use you in the lives of other people. That's what this passage is all about. The second story is the story of Johnny Erickson. The tragedy of her life didn't come through her own sinful decisions. It came through an accident. When she was in her late 20s, a diving accident left her paralyzed from the shoulders down. She had been an athletic young lady, bright, with a terrific future in front of her. And after her paralysis, she wrestled with anger and depression and suicidal thoughts and doubts about her faith. But she persevered. And I think Johnny Erickson's legacy is twofold. First of all, hers is simply a legacy that she continued to trust and believe in the Lord and believe in the gospel despite the tragedies of her life. 
And God has used her to help thousands and thousands of people to believe that whatever wheelchair they've been put into, whatever irreversible tragedy has forever changed their life, they don't have to fall into despair. God can redeem even that event and work in it and work through it in a powerful way. Let me ask you, is that your life? Has your life been tragically, irreversibly changed through no bad decision of your own? But something has happened to you that you hate. And you wonder if God is bigger than the tragedy. And Johnny Erickson's life says God can remold you and rebuild you and renew you and redeem you. And he can even redeem that awful thing that has happened to you. The second part of Johnny Erickson's legacy is simply that she has been an advocate for people with all kinds of disabilities. And she has spoken up for the weak and for the marginalized. Johnny Erickson cannot physically stand like an oak, but her life has been like an oak of righteousness. That's what her life has been like. I think Johnny Erickson's life not only illustrates what it means that our lives can be turned upside down in a good way right now. It also illustrates what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Just very recently, I heard the story that somewhere along the way in Johnny Erickson's life, I don't know exactly when, that she was meeting with and talking with someone who's not a follower of Jesus. And the person said to Johnny Erickson, don't all religions provide salvation? And with her head, she nodded down at her paralyzed body. And she said, not this kind of salvation. Not the salvation of strong arms and legs restored as well as a clean heart. Not the kind of salvation that brings a new heaven and a new earth. Not the kind of salvation that makes everything physically and spiritually what it ought to be. Not this kind of salvation. This kind of salvation only comes through Jesus. Amen and amen. I don't know if your life is in shambles today or if you fear that it will be soon. But God can redeem whatever you've gone through and whatever you're going through. That's the kind of God that he is. What are these gospel gifts that he brings to us? First of all, he's our compassionate king and prophet. He gives us a love for our hearts that we yearn for and no human being can give it to us. Secondly, he rebuilds and renews our lives. He puts the world to rights and he starts with our hearts and our lives. Thirdly is this. The third one I'll mention only very briefly in conclusion, and that is he gives righteousness as a gift, not an achievement. The third Christmas gift that Jesus brings to us is righteousness is a gift, not as an achievement. Let me ask you, don't you hate self-righteous people? Well, the very opposite of true Christianity, the very opposite of the gospel is self-righteousness. Because here's the truth, I'm not righteous, I'm unrighteous, and I can never attain any righteousness on my own. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death, and he was raised from the dead so that I can be given the absolute gift of his righteousness. Not an achievement, a gift, all by grace. And we see that described in verse 10 of Isaiah 61. Isaiah says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Notice, he clothes me. I didn't clothe myself. And he arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, not mine, but his. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You know what? I've done probably more than 200 weddings in my ministry. I don't count, but I've got to, I've got to at least have done 200. 
And I tell you what, nobody looks better than they do on their wedding day. Let me assure you of that. Nobody. Every bride is beautiful. Every groom is handsome. Imagine an impoverished bride and groom that could not afford a tuxedo rental or a wedding dress. But someone comes and buys the most beautiful dress and gives it to the bride. And buys the most handsome looking tuxedo and gives it to the groom. Imagine their joy when they put on their wedding attire, which has entirely been a gift. You see, when you and I trust in Jesus, we put on a robe. And it's not the robe of our own righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. We put on the robe of his righteousness. And when the Father sees us, that's all that he sees. Can't describe it any better than that word, than the words of the hymn, Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I'll stand there faultless, not because I'm righteous, but he's given me the gift of his righteousness. Okay, four days until Christmas. Four days till Christmas. And let me tell you, four days from now, the presents that you open, you may be glad to get but they won't satisfy the deepest yearnings of your soul. The love of your family may be wonderful and terrific, and you should be thankful for it, but it won't satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. You're made for a gift that won't fit into a box. You're made for a day of celebration that doesn't end on the 26th. You're made for a love that no human can give you. That's what this has been all about. You know, I don't think I've ever read a passage that I preached on at the end of my sermon. But today we've sort of looked at this chapter a little bit bit by little bit here and there. Let me ask you to stand as we read God's Word, Isaiah 61. Here are God's Christmas gifts to us. Here are the things that answer the deepest longings of our soul. As I read, look again for a compassionate king and prophet. Look for the world put to rights with redemption and rejoicing. Look for righteousness as a gift not an achievement. Hear God's word. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, that is the poor in spirit, the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom, spiritual freedom for those who are captives to their own addictions and fear and guilt and release from darkness for those same prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee. And the day of vengeance for our God, vengeance against our enemies of death and hell and oppression, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. It's all for his glory. Verse 4. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Praise God, he rebuilds, restores, renews our lives. Verse 7, instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. Verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation 
and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's what he's doing in all the world, all races, all people groups. That's what God is up to. Merry Christmas from the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you. We thank you that you are this kind of king and prophet. We thank you for your compassion and your grace. And we thank you that you come to people like Chuck Colson. You rebuild their lives when they've shot themselves in the foot. Thank you that you do that for each of us. We thank you that you come to those like Johnny Erickson where tragic accidents or the sinful actions of others we feel like have ruined our lives. And you come and redeem even those things, as bad as they are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us a gift of righteousness. Thank you for all that's been done because Jesus came as our Savior. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.